Hello, bonjour and ahoy. I'm Roger Hilton, media presenter at Globesec, and welcome back to Security Hooligans, a podcast about modernizing NATO, powered by the NATO 2030 Global Fellows. Pull out your passport and grab your travel pillow on today's episode as we do a deep dive on regional security assessments across the alliance. On deck, we have some multinational hooligans ready to cause havoc with us. Starting us off in Riga, we have Thomas Pilgovic, senior expert at the NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence. Heading south in Skopje is Elmas Hasanovic, head of Unit for Freedom, Justice and Security of the Secretariat for European Affairs, Government of the Republic of North Macedonia is joining us. And finally, for Bucharest, we have Claudio Bunaru, who is currently working at the Romanian Ministry of Home Affairs as head of Interagency Cooperation Unit. Guys, what a lineup. Thank you so much for joining Security Hooligans. Thank you, Roger. Uh, great, guys. Thanks so much for being with us. So let's get started, everybody. When Secretary General Stoltenberg and the SACR surveys NATO territory across Europe, Valid arguments could be made for a variety of geographical areas that could be considered hotspots and policy priorities. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has only amplified those threats where the alliance can't be complacent when it comes to preparing for every contingency, both in the short and long term. Of course, NATO didn't make it past 70 without adapting and making the necessary policy changes. Expanding the current eastern multinational battle groups from four to eight is just one example of NATO getting it right when it counts. The notorious BIG is famous for saying more money, more problems. So for NATO, is more territory, more problems? For all of our listeners out there, our multinational misfits are going to give their expert take on the situation on the ground and elaborate on what they deem as the greatest security threat facing, facing their backyard. In ruckus, we trust. So let's get going. So Thomas, it's great that you're joining us from Riga. Obviously, winter is coming, so it's only right that we start with you in the Baltics. Obviously, the events of February 24 sent real shivers through Latvia and your neighbors. We are six months into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but can you give us a lowdown on what, what the ground situation is like where you are? Hi, Roger. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me here. It's it's a true honor uh, to be part of such an illustrious uh, group of guests. <laughs> uh, to tackle your question head on, of course, the Russian uh, brutal unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, this February caused a completely fundamental reappraisal of the security environment. Uh, in the Baltic states, there is no question that uh, this war poses by far the greatest threat to our independence, which we regained uh, a little more than 30 years ago. It also represents a broader deterioration of the regional security environment. So in Latvia, in the Baltics, we have no illusions uh, that Putin's uh, kind of project of restoring his empire, this uh, neo-colonial war that he is waging, we have no illusions that it will be contained to solely Ukraine. Uh, from our vantage point, the threat of um, the threat posed by the Putin regime extends to other countries in the region, including Moldova, Georgia, countries in Central Asia and members of the alliance's eastern flank. Uh, at the same time, in the Baltics, we feel that our warnings about the true nature of the Putin regime uh, have finally been vindicated, of course, at a tragic and enormous cost. So we feel that our positions on both traditional and unconventional security issues are no longer seen within the alliance as marginal or extreme. Quite the contrary, we think that uh, 
our positions are mainstream. We feel that we're, we're uh, being heard. And we feel, most importantly, that we're not alone. We feel that NATO and our allies uh, bilaterally as well have responded in a quite, uh, quite resounding way. And uh, maybe one, one more point on this. The key, I think, to allied solidarity from the Baltic point of view is that, of course, we are small. Our capabilities are limited and uh, not a kind of a very outsized within the broader context of NATO. But we are not kind of just expecting to receive support. We're not only asking for solidarity. We are leading by example. For instance, in the case of Latvia, uh, a third of its defense budget has been donated to Ukraine. Uh, Latvia's overall economic assistance to Ukraine amounts to 0.8% of GDP, which is among the leading uh, per capita shares. And this help has been noticed, right? It's, uh, it's quite uh, noble that such small countries are willing to bear the brunt, willing to pay the highest price of sanctions of, uh, of other consequences. So overall, uh, of course, we feel uh, threatened, we feel shaken, but uh, there is no panic. There is no panic here in Riga or in the Baltics. Well, Thomas, it's great to hear a lot of things that, you know, it's great to hear your input and a lot to unpack there very quickly, but it goes without saying, you don't ever want to say we told you so, but I think as you said, whether you're in Tallinn, Vilnius or other parts of the, you know, in Warsaw, this had been a message that you had been pushing for a really long time. And as you said, you were completely vindicated and marginal, you know, what is used to be a marginalized and maybe farcical opinion is now really the norm. And it goes without saying that the, the sheer amount of aid coming from the Baltics and other allies has been tremendous uh, while it's the, the number of it is not so high as a the physical number, but as a percentage of GDP is really great. So Thomas, thanks so much for that. And of course, it's great that you have the sense that NATO is standing with you. Let's head a little bit south now. So Elmas, man in Skopje, uh, with the recent flare-up between Kosovo and Serbia, the Balkans are back in the news. Uh, and for all of our listeners, also some very John le Carré stuff recently in Albania, where two Russians and a Ukrainian were arrested for alleged espionage in a military plan in southern Albania. So Elmas, it might not get the normal coverage as other geographical parts of the alliance, but you know, in your opinion, what is the pacing threat right now for, for NATO in the Western Balkans? Uh, thank you, Roger, for uh, inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be today with you and uh, to discuss about the security threats in the Euro-Atlantic area, especially with the Western Balkans. So the situation in our region, uh, especially on the ground, is very delicate and sensitive, I would say. Firstly, and most important, our democracy is under permanent attack by different state and non-state actors who use different hybrid and cyber tools to undermine the unity and create distrust in state institutions. And as a result of that, we have the, right, uh, the, uh, the rise of nationalism and populism. Uh, for sure, the war in Ukraine has become a security threat throughout Europe, including the Western Balkans, where there are still some open issues that could follow the Ukrainian scenario and create problems. As a result of that, the impression is that Russia is attempting to open new hotspots of conflict in order to destabilize the Western Balkan region through its proxies by implementing the Gerasimov's doctrine of chaos. As you said, a few days ago, Albanian security forces have arrested three suspected Kremlin spies, two Russians and one Ukrainian, after an attack on two guards at the military base, which was believed to be a chemical agent. Also, earlier this month, Kosovo security forces have expelled a Russian suspected spy, Daria Aslamova, 
who used the profile as a journalist of Kosmo, uh, Kosmolovskaya Pravda as a cover. Uh, and for her, it's believed that she maintains close relationship with the Wagner Group and her presence at these delegate, uh, delicate times uh, for Kosovo and Serbia di dialogue is not accidentally. On the other side, there is a political turmoil in the region as well. Very recently, the government in Montenegro has fallen, as well as the dialogue between Belgrade and Prishina has been stopped. The situation in the northern part of Kosovo is getting even worse, so the political and security and social economic situation in Bosnia remains to be a security challenge as well, due to the fragile inter-ethnic relations. So, in overall, it is a little bit shaky, but uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, the accession of North Macedonia to NATO uh, gives added value to the security in the southern flank of NATO because it closes that, uh, uh, that I would say, channel and uh, 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 sphere of interest of Russia because uh, they really had entered their relationship with, uh, uh, with Orthodox Slavs. Uh, going back to your question, what is the pacing threat? First and foremost, for sure, Russia continues to pose an immediate security threat to NATO as well, the, uh, as, well as for the Western Balkan region because uh, there are three NATO member countries in this region. Uh, so I would say that non-traditional security threats uh, combined with the traditional will continue to be a great security threat uh, for, the, for the region in the future. Well, Elmas, I think it's great for our listeners that you've able, you know, you've been able to provide a snapshot of the region and what really stands out immediately is, you know, first we heard from Thomas, who was talking about a hard existential threat in the Baltics, and then contrasting it with sort of the soft threat in the proxy and the Soania disaccord in the Balkans. So just right there for all of our listeners, we really see a, a very complicated snapshot of what the security situation is and, you know, what it looks like and how it's difficult to do it. I don't know, is everybody smelling that? I'm smelling the salt water right now, Claudio, as we head towards the Black Sea region, which is also no slouch. So there's no shortage of issues in your hood from attacks in Crimea to high pressure grain shipments. So Claudio, thanks so much for joining us from Romania. So what do you see as the greatest threat facing NATO in the Black Sea region? Uh, hello, thank you, Roger, for having me. Uh, I'm glad to be among uh, friends. Uh, as you said, uh, recent events show all too clearly that many of the biggest threats we face respect no borders or walls and must be met with collective actions. In my opinion, just to be concise, uh, Russia poses an acute threat to the world order as illustrated by its uh, unprovoked invasion and vicious tactics in uh, Ukraine and remains determined to enhance its global influence and play a disruptive role on the world stage. Uh, returning to the Black Sea region, uh, this region has highlighted the need for a comprehensive approach, you know, covering not only the military, but also the economic, transport, energy, environmental and societal resilience aspects. So since the uh, invasion of the Ukraine by the Russian Federation, uh, we, we are witnessing a disruptive effect on world markets. This includes the a sharp exponential increase in the price of key commodities. Uh, also, the military conflict has also caused uncertainty over the security of energy supply and the Russian Federation's attacks on uh, crops and uh, transport infrastructure have affected also Ukraine's ability to export and uh, European Union, let's say, uh, its agri-food production further aggravating the global food crisis. 
Thus, in the context of the Kremlin instrumentalization of grain exports, uh, a lot of uh, European member states uh, actively participates in the efforts to uh, facilitate the transit of the uh, Ukrainian grain exports as a relevant part of the uh, solution to the food insecurity situation. So, um, in my uh, in my opinion, uh, even uh, the Russian Federation's uh, massive build-up uh, presence in the Black Sea region and keeping the frozen conflicts uh, will continue to affect the international security and stability. So. Uh, Claudia, thanks so much for your, your take on the region. And what I like most about it is, as we said, we've already started off determining the various hard and soft security threats. But as we take that a step forward, I mean, you've mentioned some key things when it comes to geoeconomics, uh, energy, food security. And it goes without saying that now sort of the doctrine, as Elmas had mentioned, the Garisimov document doctrine about sort of just waging war however possible. It just shows for all of our listeners that if you're sitting in NATO HQ right now, just on this first part of this podcast, all of the different issues that the regions and the countries are facing. So guys, let me move on to the next question is very quickly is, in your opinion, Thomas, what is the greatest long-term challenge in the Baltic? Is it Russia or China? Well, frankly, from uh, the Baltic point of view, there there really is no dilemma. This isn't, this is not a, yeah, it's a binary this, choice. Right? This is not a, this is not a question. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Russia's, um, very brazen pursuit of uh, of a neo-imperial restoration project poses uh, a grave threat to the very statehood and existence of the Baltic states, considering that um, for hundreds of years, the Baltic states, uh, just like uh, Ukraine, used to be part of the Russian Empire. So when uh, Putin compares himself to Peter the Great, uh, and speaks about uh, restoration of rightful Russian lands, then for us, there really is no ambiguity. And uh, the Baltic states have been at the forefront of facing the full uh, toolkit of uh, Russian hybrid and conventional threats. We are used to uh, hearing belligerent rhetoric on Russian propaganda shows on a daily basis calling for us to be wiped out. We are used to hostile election interference, mm -hmm. attempting to undermine our democracy through financing of different parties. We are used to saber-rattling huge uh, military exercises on our borders. Of course, another factor we should not forget is um, the complete uh, kind of uh, destruction of um, Belarusian sovereignty of the Lukashenko regime falling totally under kind of, kind of into Putin's uh, orbit. That for us poses a strategic challenge considering Belarus borders, both Latvia and Lithuania. Uh, so for us, of course, um, the answer is Russia, uh, although we in the Baltics are becoming more and more aware of the uh, kind of uh, global rising assertiveness of China. But uh, for us, there is a clear there is a clear answer to this question. No, I mean, I, like you said, I mean, I think it was very clear. And for everybody out there, I mean, I think, Thomas, Latvia and Estonia just left another sort of these formats in the EU, right, uh, where it's the 16 plus one has been reduced with Lithuania really leading the way on, on sort of democracy when it comes to China and uh, their unhappiness about relations with Taiwan. Claudio, what about you? I mean, it's a bit undercover, but I mean, do you still think that Russia is the, the long term challenge for Romania and the Black Sea region? Or do you see something a little bit different on your end? 
in in what uh, talking about the Black Sea region, uh, for sure, uh, Russia uh, poses an acute threat. But uh, regarding the pacing threat for the next decade, uh, I think that uh, we need to act uh, urgently to sustain and strengthen the deterrence with the PRC, you know, because PRC is, well, in my opinion, the most uh, strategic competitor and pacing challenge because he ha uh, it has rapidly become more assertive. It's the only competitor potentially capable of combining its uh, instruments, economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to mount a sustained challenge. Just yeah. to be sure. No, yeah. Claudia, I think that's a great way you've put it about sort of the only equal in terms of strategic competitor. And as you said, they have a much larger and diverse set of uh, arsenal of weapons, you know, whether it's, it's you know, soft security financing or debt traps. So all really good the way they've brought, the way the PRC has bought up quite a bit of strategic ports across Europe. So Elmas, man back in Skopje, what, what do you guys think in long term uh, is the greatest threat to NATO in the Balkans? For the Western Balkans, but also as a member of NATO, uh, for sure, it's Russia. So the Western Balkans region once again has become an arena for great power competition. And that's mainly because Russia has a long-standing political and strategic interest to Western Balkan region. Russia exerts its political influence in the region through the culture, control over regional energy supplies, financial aid and military support over certain countries. Historically, Russia considers itself as a natural ally and savior of the Slavic Orthodox population in the region, which are, uh, I think, the, the mostly populated in the Western Balkan region, and among which they retain a relatively high level of popular support. Uh, Russia also firms, uh, firmly opposes the Kosovo's independence and supports Belgrade's position that it remains a province of Serbia. Uh, although Belgrade and Pristina have signed an agreement for economic cooperation brokered by Washington, they have not moved a step for, uh, forward uh, in mutual recognition and the position of the parties seems completely different on the main issue, which is the direct recognition or, or indirect recognition of Kosovo's independence and statehood by, by Serbia. As an example, currently Serbia's Minister for Internal Affairs, Alexander Vulin, uh, paid a visit to Moscow and met with Sergei Lavrov where a central question is the situation in Kosovo, while in the same time the situation is getting even you know more warmed up. Uh, on the other side, the Russian support for paramilitary and uh, patriotic organizations in the Western Balkan region is another security challenge because in the past they tried to oppose North Macedonia's and Montenegro's accession to NATO and they, they tried to sabotage their uh, integration. On the other side, China is expanding their interests around the world, security, economic, and political, but also has expressed willingness to invest in the strategic infrastructure across EU, where Western Balkans, in particular, is in the focus of China's foreign investment plan because they are a linkage area as a part of its broader Belt and Road Initiative that will enable efficient transfer of China, uh, Chinese goods to the EU common market. So China maintains its presence in the region through its cheap loans and good services. For example, for the period from 2007 to 2017, the construction projects as a part of the initiative China's 17 plus 1 initiative were worth 12.2 uh, 12 billion euros uh, in 16 uh, Central European and Southeast European countries, uh, within almost 30% goes to Serbia and 20 20.7% goes to Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
So the huge loans offered by Chinese banks increase the, the debt to GDP ratio for many countries that leads to political dependency. So mainly these are the two main reasons on the long term why I think that China and Russia will continue to be the greatest security threats for the region. Uh, well, Amas, I mean, like you said, we touched on it a little bit already, and, and Claudio already set the table on it, but, you know, sort of this, the Belt and Road right now project from China, which is now stalled, and, you know, providing all of the data that really shows what they're trying to leverage, it goes without saying that that's a whole other area of geoeconomics that NATO needs to be prepared with, because it's not obviously so evident uh, as a hard security threat, it's not something that you can fight so evidently by, you know, pre-positioning equipment. So, Hooligans, thank you so much for sort of giving us a situation on the ground, <clears throat> sorry, everybody, by giving us the situation on the ground and sort of giving us the short-term threat and what you think is the long-term. So guys, we've outlined the plethora of potential problems facing NATO. So let's get into the solutions in a free-for-all mode. Against the backdrop of all of these threats, how do you all rate NATO's response? And do you think the new strategic concept really was up to par? So Claudio, let's start with you on this one. What do you make of NATO's response since the Madrid summit? Uh, thank you, Roger. Um, what are the... <laughs> the uh... The response, yeah. The, in my opinion, uh, NATO maintained a, a high level of deterrence and defense capability. Even we witnessed the uh, Ukrainian uh, invasion, and uh, the measures were eminently defensive. A defensive response, you know, to the growing security risks, threats, and challenges in the uh, in the region. Um, the current crisis. Uh, proves once more uh, that the strengthening of the presence on the uh, NATO's eastern flank, including here in Romania, is uh, very important for regional stability, but also for the security of the alliance as a whole and for the citizens of the, uh, the member states. Um, when we are talking about the uh, new NATO strategic concept, uh, we have to mention that for the first time, uh, NATO mentions the uh, Russian Federation as the most significant and direct threat to the uh, allies' security and to peace and stability in the Euro-Atlantic uh, area. So just to emphasize something about the uh, NATO's uh, strategic uh, concept, uh, I think that it provides an enabling environment for the allied states to work together to identify and mitigate the dependencies and vulnerabilities, including in the areas of uh, critical infrastructure, health, food, water security, and from a resilience uh, building perspective. Oh, well, I mean, I, uh, Claudio, like I'm just so resilient uh, when, I, when I'm <laughs> listening to you, you're inspiring. So uh, Claudio, thank you so much for giving us sort of the, the breakdown of a little bit. Let's go back up north to you, Thomas. I mean, obviously you guys are really on the front line, even more so than Romania. So, I mean, you've already spoken about the existential threat that everybody in the Baltic faced about it. So in response, I mean, you're sitting here in Riga, like what do you think of NATO's response uh, to sort of the pacing challenges that you've already outlined in detail? Uh, great, uh, great question. And uh, first, a brief remark about uh, uh, one of my takeaways about our previous answers. I think that maybe, while it might not necessarily be the most kind of provocative scenario for the in terms of the podcast, I think it's actually music to my ears that all three of us agreed on the most pressing uh, challenge, despite coming uh, the most pressing long term challenge being Russia, despite coming from three different countries. I think this type of common perception, common threat perception is actually uh, the ultimate key, right? To, to having any kind of united uh, NATO posture and approach. 
Um, well, watch out, to- Beijing. Uh, Elmas is is, uh, <laughs> is cracking that data, so keep one eye open, Xi Jinping. But uh, go back to it, Thomas, and don't worry, Elmas, uh, you'll get your answer. So go for it, Thomas. Sorry. But turning briefly, uh, I won't repeat what Claudio said because I I broadly very much agree. But uh, to add a bit, uh, I think that one of the most encouraging outcomes is, of course the agreement uh, to make progress on uh, Finland's and Sweden's accession to NATO. For us in the Baltics, this is arguably the most important security development since we ourselves acceded to NATO. For us, this is a complete game changer because, uh, of course, now uh, member state legislatures are ratifying the application accession and it's still taking time. But once this process is complete, the entire kind of... um, geostrategic character of the Baltic Sea will be transformed. It will not just be a European Union lake, so to say, it will become a NATO lake. And uh, this um, is as enormous strategic um, potential in terms of force deployment, anti-ship weaponry, and denying Russia access to um, our coasts. And uh, this we really, um, accepting Finland, Finland and Sweden, which are two very advanced, stable Nordic democracies, we see this as the final vital piece missing from completing NATO's northern security architecture. So we're very happy about that. Well, that's great to hear. And as you said, I mean, it's almost it's suffocating in terms of what the response was when it comes to the Baltic, right? Where, uh, I mean, all the normal options that Russia would have have really been closed apart from Kaliningrad. So it's great to hear that, you know, as you said, in addition to Latvia and all of your neighbors joining that this was as, you know, big a, a moment it, it could be with you, not to mention sort of the um, expanded presence uh, of the EFP with Canada leading it in Latvia, for instance, and across the Baltic. So that's a good one. And as we go to our famous numbers cruncher, here we have Elma. So, Elmas, you know, you're again sitting in the Balkans. What do you think of NATO's response since Madrid? Or, I mean, you're obviously a keen reader of strategic concept. Does something really stand out for you that really was was good? Or if there was actually something that was missing in your assessment? Uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm very impressed about the prompt reaction in condemning Russia's invasion on Ukraine support that NATO allies are uh, collectively and individually supporting uh, the Ukraine's uh, territorial sovereignty and integrity. So I'm also proud that our country stands ready to provide the help and uh, we really need to continue uh, help Ukraine in their defense of uh, not only the country, but they're defending the uh, Western democracy. Because this is not only a war between Ukraine and Russia, it's between authoritarian regimes and democracy. So uh, what I think, I'll start what is missing. I think that uh, what is missing is that uh, the NATO 2022 strategic concept significantly downgrades the the focus on the arms control and especially the CSBM, so the confidence, security and building measures, compared to the last uh, strategic concept. Uh, But what I uh, was impressed and was expecting is that uh, Russia has gone from being a potential strategic partner from 2010 to being defined as an immediate threat and uh, uh, adversary. So a clear message to Russia. And second, the rhetoric on the Chinese expansion of power that we already talked and the the weaponized interdependence of threats, uh, which I think that combined with their political, uh, foreign policy, uh, military, economic and other interests, they're trying to pierce uh, in the EU and NATO area under the radar. So we, are, we must be aware of that. 
but uh, I would like to uh, to bring another topic uh, to the table. Uh, mainly, I want uh, the fundamental purpose of NATO's nuclear capabilities to preserve peace, prevent coercion, deter aggression. But when it comes to nuclear capabilities and nuclear deterrence as trust in the strategic concept, NATO's deterrence and defense posture is based on an appropriate mix of nuclear conventional and missile defense capabilities, complemented by space and uh, cyber capabilities. Furthermore, in the paragraph 18 of the NATO strategic uh, concept, the Alliance uh, rightly recognizes it as a security threat, the potential use of chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear materials or weapons against NATO by hostile state and non-state actors. However, that doesn't cover nor deter state and non-state actors to cause or attack NATO allies through proxy nuclear activities. Therefore, I would like to bring another side of the discussion, and that uh, is uh, since Russia carried out a series of military attacks and seized the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, and also today we had a, a massive attack in that region, would NATO react if Russia cause a nuclear accident in Zaporozhye? Uh, so my question is, should we revise the threshold of activation of Article 5 if hypothetically a nuclear accident occurs and there is a leak of radiation over Ukraine and over the territories of the surrounding NATO allies, could that, NATO, uh, could that draw NATO into the war between Russia and Ukraine? My argument, my opinion, is yes, NATO must be prepared to protect its territories, but how NATO allies will respond and to what extent is subject for a greater discussion. Uh, well, Elmas, I'm not sure you ever get invited back to security hooligans flipping it on, uh, flipping on, and you the one asking the question. But it goes without saying for all of our listeners. I mean, in the preparation for this call, we spoke about it. And this is just one of the complex questions that the SACR, as well as the policy planning unit, are dealing with. Um, it's unclear at the moment, for instance, as you said, Elmas, what the reaction to NATO would be, or if they have a decontamination plan in place the way that it, you know, after Chernobyl, where, it, you know, the Soviet Union did reach out to the West asking for help. But Claudio and Thomas, I don't want to put anybody on the hot seat too much, but does anybody want to respond to Elmas when it comes to the nuclear situation in Zaporizhia, or just move on to the next question? Uh, I want to add something, if it's possible. The, for sure, the uh, current environment is a breeding ground, you know, for multiple threats for the Euro-Atlantic security. And uh, invoking the Article 5 on this situation is very sensitive, you know, because uh, it's a kinetic uh, action by, the, by default. Uh, having something uh, initiated at the Zaporozhye nuclear plant. But uh, the Russia's stockpile of nuclear weapons suggests that uh, it should not be underestimated, uh, even if it continues to decline, both military and economically. Uh, a trajectory that will worsen in the future uh, as it tries to recover from its losses during its war with Ukraine and crippling sanctions, sanctions sorry, that have shut it out the, the global market. So, uh, Right, uh, in, uh, right uh, today, uh, the Russian Federation uh, uh, State Duma or something like, I don't know the official name, it's uh, organizing a special session to discuss the uh, situation of the Zaporozhye nuclear plant. So I don't know what is discussing there or if it uh, affects the, uh, uh, the citizens in the, this part of the European Union or Europe. That's all for 
Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I I, I, hope, I think we all just hope that the situation will stabilize a little bit. And the fact that Russia is engaging in nuclear terrorism and even forcing Kiev to respond to these questions is just totally farcical and ludicrous. And the idea that they can try to reposition uh, the energy sources at Zaporizhia to line up to Crimea is also just a huge thing. So there's a lot of implications for companies like Rosatom who are actually doing the engineering and what the consequences excuse me, what the consequences should be for them. Thomas, I know you're you're silent up there in Riga and you're hoping you've gotten away with this. But one last thing that nobody had mentioned, and we've covered a whole swat of, of, uh, of questions is, Thomas, what is your take uh, on when it comes to climate security? Um, obviously, you know, in the summer, we've had Southern Europe burning uh, and there's just a lot of more natural disasters happening. So while we've all made the assessment on this common threat perception about China, I'm going to open up the floor just for one last little input. I mean, what do we think of climate security? On my end, I think the the new strategic concept really was groundbreaking in terms of, you know, not just measuring the carbon footprint, but that NATO really assessed that, you know, green technologies were going to be game changers on the battlefield. So I don't know, Thomas, do you have a take on what it means uh, for climate security in the Baltic region? I, I think, uh, I think not even just in, in the context of the Baltic region, I think that, uh, in very unexpected, unconventional ways, uh, the consequences of Russia's uh, war against Ukraine uh, have really cast into light the need to move beyond very rigid orthodox understandings of, of security and conflict, uh, conflict resolution. For instance, uh, the um effort to look beyond kind of you know just counting tanks and hardware and actually look at the environmental havoc the environmental destruction that uh that the russian invasion has caused of course global food security has emerged as a primary uh as a primary sort of uh implication or, or consequence of this conflict so i think that is definitely definitely uh necessitated a, a reappraisal and uh, of course, while, as I mentioned in the Baltics, we're much more focused, at least for now, on both the kind of hard and soft dimensions of security, uh, we are uh, certainly in favor of NATO being much more ambitious in its, in its scope. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, from the even looking back at the Cold War, it's really the one threat that completely does not discriminate based on borders or ethnicity or language or religion. So even while, you know, we're engaged in this ideological struggle right now with Moscow, there is, you know, a, an argument to be made about working with Russia in the future on climate security, whether it's, you know, the permafrost in Siberia that's that's melting and all of the, the nasty stuff that comes out of it. So Elmas, Claudio, just one last take, anything on climate security that stood out from the strategic concept or just in general? general, uh, you know, from the geographical areas you guys are in? Sorry, if I could jump in on that a bit? No, Thomas. No, of course, go for it. <laughs> go, go for it I, will, I will follow the Elmas playbook for hijacking the, the conversation. Again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I have to say that uh, since you asked, uh, I must uh, a bit push back on the argument for uh, working with uh, the Putin regime on uh, issues, uh, including climate change. I think that um, the Putin regime has shown its true face and crossed every red line imaginable. And of course, the fact that Russia still remains a, a player with uh, major global influence, of course, it gives avenues for the regime to legitimize itself in various ways, right? So Russia will still push for space cooperation, for climate cooperation, for uh, scientific, all sorts of exchanges. But this is simply a way for it to 
re-legitimize itself in the international arena to call for the removal of sanctions. And at this point, we should understand that uh, any deal, any diplomatic agreement signed with the Putin regime is worth the paper it's signed on. I mean, look, even the grain deal uh, that, that was signed um, literally a day after the UN uh, Sakjan and uh, and the other actors involved made the agreement. Russia struck a grain terminal in the port of Odessa. So I th- I would be very wary of kind of um, again exploring bridges of cooperation. I think that uh, enough enough uh, smart politicians across uh, Europe and across uh, across the world really have invested political capital in building cooperation with Putin only to be burnt. And I think it's time we learn from that. Well, Thomas, now that we've sort of turned the security hooligans into a hockey match between Canada and Latvia, I guess uh, I got to go on the power play. But I mean, Thomas, <laughs> yeah. you couldn't be more accurate in the sense that, you know, it's a long stand. It's a longstanding sentiment that you can't trust the paper. It's writ- You can't trust anything uh, when it comes to Russia. But, you know, one day there will be a time when Putin won't be there. Uh, and you hope, I mean, in the short term, it's not even an option to consider given everything you said, but I hope moving you know, forward into the future, way, way down the line that there will be an, an area to cooperate because everything you said, Thomas, is completely valid, but at the same time, if there are major, you know, natural disasters and ge- geographical problems occurring in Siberia or other parts of Russia, they're not going to be contained or isolated to that area. So it affects everyone. But I mean, it goes without saying whether it's space cooperation, this is not the time to engage on them on any sense. But we hope in the future moving forward that Russia without Putin, there will be, you know, a gradual opening. So now that we've, we had our little hockey match between Latvia and Canada, Claudia and Elmas, uh, anything on climate security before we move on to our last question? Yes, I'll just briefly mention that the environmental or climate change has been on NATO's agenda since 1969, uh, the year when the Committee on the Challenges of Modern Society was established. Uh, but I also think that the food insecurity and water management in Africa, but also the food insecurity caused by the Russian invasion on Ukraine on the one side, as well as the natural disasters such as earthquakes, wildfires, floods and droughts in Europe on the other side, can affect national economies and hamper the nation-states governments and those NATO's abilities to deal with this type of crisis. Also, the emission of CO2, plastic waste, and nuclear tests has harmful effects, as you said, on melting the ice and other uh, correlated and uh, you know uh, effects that could be caused on the environment and that to lead uh, to the climate change. Uh, to this end, I think that NATO must strengthen the cooperation with the EU as well and the other partners in addressing the and tackling the climate change because the adoption of the European Green Deal is a crucial milestone for making Europe climate neutral, but also uh, with these emerging uh, new technologies uh, that uh, could contribute towards having uh, decreased emission of uh, CO2 and uh, uh, lowering the uh, air, uh, air pollution as well. Now, Elmas, you're the Terminator in Scopia, so we got to get you uh, working in the policy funding unit. Claudio, last question. Any hot take uh, on climate security in the Black Sea region? Uh, for me, the uh, climate change, it's uh, a defining challenge for, for our time. So uh, providing our armed forces, you know, with the uh, equipment they need uh, to operate in extreme or in uh, heat, uh, heat or cold uh, uh, environments, uh, it's very important. So uh, we need to take account of the climate change when planning, let's say, uh, NATO's operations or missions. 
and even uh, and when developing new capabilities. Uh, I think that this is the only way we could make uh, sure that we remain effective in these uh, environments. So well, that's my, my input. We- yeah, well, Claudia, thanks for that. And I mean, Hooligans, we've really covered every issue seems feasible uh, among those three regions. So we got ahead. But before exiting the ruckus, I'm going to ask all of you guys one last expert question. And, you know, like Finnish Prime Minister Madin, we need one who needs one last dance, uh, which was just amazing. So solidarity with Sana. Um, you know, we're going to go. But Thomas, just before we get going on that, like before we got on air, you were just sort of saying uh, your take on it. So what do you make of sort of the, the, the release or the leak of uh, the Finnish Prime Minister dance? team overall i am all in favor of uh politicians who are authentic uh i think we need to uh that is actually a key i think of to successful strategic communications for people to be able to communicate important policies important messages to people in an authentic understandable way and i think when we look at the finnish prime minister we should look at some fundamental deeds and that means that she is the leader who took who is taking her country into NATO. That is a decision of historic proportions. That is a a decision with generational implications. She has, uh, I would say, bravely stood up to intimidation and uh, by the Putin regime. And she has uh, taken some stance on some uh, robust policies, such as advocating for a visa ban for Mm -hmm. Russian tourists while Russia is, uh, uh, you know, committing war crimes in Ukraine. And I think uh, looking at some of the research available, some open source research, uh, we cannot uh, exclude the possibility that uh, Russian uh, kind of information operations have been involved in promoting the spread of this video. So once the video was leaked, uh, it attracted enormous uh, coverage through deliberate amplification via various networks. So I would not be surprised if um, if hostile interference was also a part of this scandal. No, but, you know, and Thomas, thanks for that, you know, expert take on it. But just like everything Putin has done recently, I mean, I think the whole idea of leaking it and trying to sort of drag her through the mud, it's completely backfired, where, you know, even on Twitter, you have all of these female politicians or, or, you know, female professionals in Denmark, all, you know, tweeting about them dancing and saying they can mix business and pleasure when appropriate. So again, just another hard fail from the Kremlin. So back to the drawing board, boys, guys. We have our last question here. So here we go. If you are meeting with NATO's policy planning unit or the NAC, North Atlantic Council for all of our listeners, providing counsel, let me ask each of you, how can NATO continue to adapt and defend every inch of its territory across such a diverse regional landscape? So Man in Skopje, Elmas, you're up first. I will be very brief. Uh, NATO should continue to strengthen the resilience, but also to reach uh, interoperability of resilience because not Every country in the NATO alliance has the same level of resilience, mainly because of their size of economies and the capacities that they have. And I think that uh, the new emerging uh, technologies would play a crucial role in that regard in strengthening the resilience, especially in developing the hybrid and cybersecurity toolbox that will prevent these disinformation campaigns. Back to what you said about the experience that Finland is having, uh, I just want to uh, share with all, all of us that uh, North Macedonia and Montenegro has been gone through the same process when we tried to integrate in NATO. We were exposed uh, 
and we were as they said we were legitimate target of the Russian uh, sponsored disinformation campaigns who tried to block our integration to NATO and uh, what we are seeing now uh, with Finland's experience is for sure a Russian signature there is no doubt in that but also I would like to emphasize that uh, once you integrate in NATO the job is not done because uh, the, the, this narrative still circulates and they're mainly spread by the Russian media outlets like Rapley or Sputnik, whose narratives uh, try to undermine the NATO's and EU's response in dealing with the crisis, but also to create disunity. Uh, and if uh, if you just let me uh, to add a couple more sentences, is that uh, we have many uh, web portals in our country that uh, spread disinformation on Macedonian language, mostly uh, state-funded by, by Russia, but also we have a new trend by Beijing. So uh, Russia beyond. It's one of the portals that mostly uh, uh, spreads disinformation and is uh, glorifying Russia's uh, military economic superiority. But uh, what is interesting is that in Albania there is a certain radio that spreads narratives, uh, narratives glorifying China. So we are having a new trend in that direction. And uh, that is the China foreign radio Eyani, whose official account on Facebook has 1.1 million followers. So one of the narratives that they are spreading is that uh, people living in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region were very poor because they were allegedly uh, uh, guided or governed by uh, terrorists. And after fighting those terrorists in that region, the Chinese government helped people to live better and in harmony. So they try to rid of that narrative that they are making atrocities over Uyghurs there. And instead of that, they're claiming that they're fighting terrorism. So uh, my point is uh, uh, strengthening the resilience in all senses, especially in the uh, emerging technologies, and strengthening the resilience from uh, with hybrid warfare is very important because if they uh, succeed, and, I, and I'm sure that they will not, but if they succeed to create distrust, then the, uh, they open a door for a nationalistic and populist leaders that are anti-NATO and anti-EU uh, to govern the, our countries. Well, Almas, I mean, uh, we got to get you uh, deployed here. I mean, you're hitting us with some hard facts. We covered a lot of issues. And like you said, I mean, there's a lot of work left to be done and that we can't be complacent. So as our last thing, Thomas, like we're going into overtime on our Latvia-Canada hockey match. So what is your sort of final one or two policy suggestions that NATO should contemplate or consider implementing uh, to defend every inch of territory? Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll also be super brief. Uh, I think that uh, the addition of Finland and Sweden allows for the broader strengthening and integration of EU and NATO cooperation. I think that, of course, while NATO is a military alliance, its resources go far beyond the conventional military capabilities, right? It's developing increasingly sophisticated capabilities in STRATCOM, information operations, cyber offensive cyber, counter-hybrid warfare teams. And uh, here, NATO would very much benefit from closer coordination with the EU, with the EU's Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. I think these organizations are natural partners, and there must be ways to intensify cooperation without avoiding duplication and uh, wastefulness of resources. So I think that that is absolutely the future way forward. 
Well, you know, hooligans, just an unbelievably epic ruckus. So much wisdom uh, and good times going on. So guys, my, you know, from here in Montreal, Quebec, uh, thank you so much for joining. The hooligans will be back for part two of Alliance Regional Security Assessment. So stay tuned as we look at different areas across the NATO uh, geographical scope. And just a friendly reminder to all of our listeners, hit subscribe. And for all of those who've continued to listen and ruckusing with us, thank you so much for your support. Uh, I hope we're doing a good job and we always look forward to, to hearing from you. So guys, now on to the fun stuff. Um, we've heard from a whole bunch of different fellows on it, but as everybody wants to know, you know, what are you reading? What are you streaming? What are you Spotifying? So Man in Scopia, Elmas, what, uh, what's your social calendar looking like these days? The social calendar is mainly uh, focused now on the EU integration part because uh, we're trying to, uh, as a country, we have set our agenda and uh, there is EU and NATO integration. So through my work, I'm now mainly focused on uh, providing help and uh, working directly on the EU integration of our country. Yeah, oh, well, man, get, get this guy an award. Uh, his social calendar is integration. So, Elmas, very no interesting. Time, no time for social activities in this period because, you know, we, we live in very delicate times. And uh, as I said, uh, Ukraine reminded us that uh, democracy, freedom, and security should not be taken for granted. So we have to work for it. No, well, Elmas, don't forget to eat some of that great food down there in the Balkans. Savap teach either wine, maybe a rakia before you go to bed. But uh, great to hear that. Claudio, and you're in, in the Black Sea region. Uh, and you reading anything interesting or listening to a new album? So right now, right now, I just finished uh, a book, Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear. Uh, it's a book about uh, an easy and proven way to, to build good habits and break the, the bad ones. And I'm streaming uh, a little bit on the uh, LinkedIn, uh, on my LinkedIn page, uh, something about, I don't know, geopolitical, both in Romanian and in English, sometimes in French. So it depends uh, on my time and how much time do I have. Well, uh, Thomas, you're up now, but uh, I guess you're going to have to alter your answer, given that the hooligans uh, are such serious and studious uh, folks. But uh, Thomas, what are you up to these days? Uh, are you listening to an old album, maybe, or got any travel plans? I am uh, mourning the end of summer. I am trying to kind of <laughs> accept accept reality, going through the stages of grief. So I think I'm still in denial. I had a really, really uh, great, uh, relaxing summer. but now. Uh, back to work. So as I said, I've, I've started a new job, so I'm getting acclimated to that. I read a quite uh, interesting book to keep on the kind of semi-serious note uh, <laughs> by Ron Asmus, a retired uh, US diplomat called uh, Little War That Shook the World. And it uh, details the kind of uh, very play-by-play behind the scenes, behind closed doors account of of what transpired during uh, Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008. And it's really, really remarkable how even back then they kind of uh, ominously refer to uh, this Pandora's box being opened and, you know, Crimea maybe being uh, a scenario in the future. So really, really kind of uh, farsighted, farsighted book. 
All right. Well, I mean, again, guys, I'm going to have to adapt like NATO. I mean, I was going to tell you about just going to Rammstein on the weekend, but uh, I guess I'm halfway done this book, Ice War Diplomat, uh, outlining the 1972 summit series between the Soviet Union and Canada. So, I mean, that's supremely interesting to see how that got made under the the blanket of the Cold War specter. And, you know, Thomas, at least for us, as uh, I think you're a hockey fan, we've got NHL training camps opening in a month. So uh, I definitely am with you about grieving about the end of summer morning, but, uh, you know, we time to get back to business as they say so from everybody here at the security hooligans thank you so much guys thank you again for joining and stay tuned for our next episode goodbye thank you so much thank you so much goodbye goodbye